Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Wendy Jew, an eminent authority at the crossroads of human interaction with automated systems. From her robust exploration into how people navigate digital and physical interfaces that subtly communicate with them, to her pioneering roles at institutions like Stanford and Cornell Tech, Wendy's contributions have been pivotal in shaping the landscape of interaction design research. Passionate educator, she's originated courses focused on interactive devices, and beyond academia, she's lent her expertise to publications, including her insightful book, The Design of Implicit Interactions, broadening our understanding of seamless interaction in our day-to-day lives. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for being on Designing for Movement. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Julian. Well, thank you. So I want to start off by saying this. I've been following your work for some time has always struck me as being really innovative with strong scientific background, but also an inherent degree of uh, creativity as well, which always really struck me as pretty impressive. Can you take us back to the beginning and what really got you started on this journey of exploring autonomous systems, research? How did you begin? What was your origin story, essentially? My background is actually in mechanical engineering and where I did my undergraduate degree, I think mechanical engineering is where design was. And I was really interested in this kind of intersection of design and engineering. It just seemed like I was really fascinated by all these like doodads. I think at the time I was in college, they were like haptic mice. That was like really just so cool. I think I was really in it for the doodads at the beginning. And then over the course of my, like, I got a master's and I was thinking I would, you know, go and do a startup. After that, I realized that, like, there were a lot of things that I could see about, like, the way that computational systems, particularly, like, interactive systems, like, what would actually make things better that wasn't obvious to people around me. And so I think over time that has kind of evolved into thinking about automation. This is, like, an area where is not just something that's going to cause a little friction in the things that you're going to do when we have autonomous systems. They're going to make assumptions and take action in the world. So I think if you design those things poorly, it has a lot of impact. So I've been really now focused on thinking about how we design those interactions with people so those things are safe and feel good. You know, like having our health situation, it could be great or it could be terrible. And I really think it is design, you know, some building around some intuition about how people work. That's really important. And I think a lot of people don't have that intuition. I mean, they don't know how to build that intuition. So that is really kind of what I focus on. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. What have been some of your major influences over the years? Like it has informed your perspective on design, how you approach it, the way you think about it, how you solve problems. What have been some of those influences that have been really impactful for you? 
That's a good question. So I grew up in the California Bay Area, and there's a lot of people who work in product design who moved into interaction design. One of the earliest people that I know of was Bill Verplank. He and Bill Mongridge are the people who coined this term, interaction design. But I met a lot of the people that my HCI faculty like had as just friends that would come guest lecture. And these people turned out not just to be the local people, but also to be like founders of the field, big luminaries, both in HCI and interaction design, Brenda Laurel, Joy Mountford. And these are people who, for example, worked at Apple, worked on the human interface guidelines, did a lot of traditional human factors testing, but turned that into thinking about how do we design these new systems. So they were sitting there at this kind of intersection. And what was emphasized to me, and I just don't think is taught everywhere, is just the importance of prototyping and prototyping with people. And so from a method standpoint, that's still really what I do. I just try to come up with clever ways to prototype with people, give people enough of an experience so they can act naturally, and then we can learn from them how we should be designing the systems in response. Another big influence on me is Eric Horvitz, researchers at Microsoft Research. I think it dates me a little bit, but like I remember when Microsoft Office had Clippy. I think it's just more legend, but I remember when it was a product, you know, and it was an exciting product. You know, it was like really interesting, this dancing paperclip. And you can see things that it did make easier and then all these things that were really frustrating about it. And one of the really cool things when I started to get into HDI research was discovering these papers about Lumiere. So the backstory is when they developed these systems, they actually had a wizard basically acting, you know, as a smart agent. And they would, wizard would be able to see the screen, you know, capture from someone who was trying to do some sort of task on their Windows desktop. And then if they were confused, they could ask the person questions like, you know, are you looking for you know, a way to format your, you know, document as a letter? And then they could have some dialogue and then figure out ways to assist the person. And this like research with all these wizards and all this, like, you know, I think they had collected a lot of data about what people are trying to do and what the warrant, you know, like the indicators of what those things are. And they built these like complicated models. Like that's the stuff that went into Clippy, except that when it came to prior time, like these models were too big. And so we just got rid of the models, the probabilistic models of what people are doing, you know, went away instead. They just had the, the talking agent, like operating on very little information and trying to do things. And I thought like, that's so amazing. Like this could have been a really cool product if they had waited a little while to the point that there was like more storage or better computation. And, you know, we're so excited to have this thing out. Instead, they like had this like muted version, got these like really strong reactions, you know. So to the point that like they kind of took away the agent and they still had a lot of this underlying technology. Anyway, still, I was really inspired by the work that like Eric Horvitz and the people at MSR did in that space. And I'm still doing a lot of different kinds of Wizard of Oz in that vein now. So let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, I have noticed that a lot of your work uses some very novel methods, really, you know, well-grounded methods, but really very novel. So when you're trying to basically, and this is really what I think might be the heart of our discussion today, when you're trying to solve problems and really trying to understand a domain, right, using some of those types of methods, do they tend to differ when you're working from one domain to another? So when you're working on automotive, for instance, are you maybe using, you know, one set of tools or one particular type approach that might differ from when you're focusing more on an autonomous system, whether it's automotive or otherwise. 
but when you're working on an autonomous system, are you using different types of approaches? Does your thinking shift a little bit? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the overall approach is the same, but I'm willing to use a lot of different technologies to pull a thing off. So for example, autonomous cars is such an interesting thing. Like most of the places where they're being tested, where it's, you know, in the middle of the desert or, you know, in a city where they cleared all the people out. And so it wasn't clear how you could test the, you know, everyone could tell we're going to be interesting interaction problems with people. It definitely seemed like you shouldn't do it near people in their everyday lives. But when you do these tests and simulation, it's a little hard to know whether people are behaving the way they would in real life. So one of the things, you know, I had a visiting researcher from industry, Rothenbucher, who was riding his bicycle, this was at Stanford, to work every day. And he was saying like, you know, these self-driving cars, Google X was starting to do some experiments with the cars, but with people behind the wheels, like a safety driver's He's like, the problem is that people are negotiating with the safety drivers, but the safety drivers can't actually draw it. And I'm like, you know, I think they're doing what they can because it's really dangerous to test a self-driving vehicle without people. And like, one of the things that we just kept talking about then in the research group is like, is there a way to get at this problem? Like, what is the way that people are supposed to understand what to do if there's not a person to negotiate with behind the wheel? And we talked about that for months. And then one day somebody comes in and has this like, you know, he's just showing us, I don't even remember who in the research group was showing us this like prank video where somebody in a car seat costume is going through drive through <laughs> We were just like laughing ourselves completely silly. And when it calmed down a little bit, I was like, we should study self-driving cars this way. And we were all like giggling, you know, and laughing really hard. And then I was like, I don't know who I'd have to talk to to try doing that. And then I thought about it longer. I'm like, Actually, it doesn't cost anything you know, to have a car seat costume. We could just try this. And then it's like one of these things, like this ended up being like the way to understand how people who are out in the real world, pedestrians in different contexts, will interact with a self-driving car when there's not a person behind the wheel. And I remember showing this to like partners in industry and a lot of them were skeptical. I thought it was a joke. And then, you know, I remember the researchers from Ford were particularly like, that is ridiculous. Why don't you just use a real self-driving car? I'm like, well, you know, just give me one. But then like inside of six months, they were doing like trials of like autonomous pizza delivery with Domino's pizza using, you know, a person in a car seat costume. And so I think it is ridiculous, but it is also the right way to solve the problem. And, you know, that's an example of a Wizard of Oz thing. I think it's not obvious to people. That is clearly a Wizard of Oz thing, but you're basically faking the automation with the person in the car seat costume. And then you have all the benefits of a really, you know, perceptive and smart, you know, capable driver, human driver. But then this really nice setup where you can understand how people are going to respond in that space. And they're just using their expertise about every day, walking around in a way that is useful. So that's really interesting. And I have a couple of questions to follow up on that, which I've always wanted to ask. It's interesting. So I'm a faculty member here at Clemson. My office, I'm sitting here looking at the automotive engineering building right next door. So we do a lot of automotive research, right? So we're on test tracks and things like that. And even with that, we still get some degree of pushback from our IRB when we get like really novel or try to be really innovative in some of the things that we're doing. Did you have any pushback when you basically proposed this method to actually do this? You know, to use that approach, you know, putting somebody in the, you know, in a car seat suit, like they raise questions, did they inquire, did they? 
they definitely got questions. So the main thing that everyone wants is to make sure things are safe, right? And that no one is at risk. And so one of the things I do when I'm writing the IRB protocol in the situation is just like all on-road experiments, not just, I mean, we had a lot of, you know, on-road research before that. Like we're saying like, you know, like it's real cars, people could die. They can get accidents, you know, then you basically try to think through like all the things, bad things that could happen. Like what would you want to happen after that, right? Like a lot of times is making sure there's a phone in the car and that the person who's driving is able to call the researcher so we can get out there and call 911 or call insurance or whatever needs to happen as soon as possible. But the other thing is, you know, it's a risk reward situation. Like on one hand, it's risky and you don't want people to be put at risk just for science, but it's not just for science. Like if we don't actually test it, then we will have untested technologies on the road and that would be worse. You know, I think one of the things is a lot of the companies are doing the testing and we don't get to find out if things are safe or not, you know, and it really needs to be done in a space where like everyone can like look at it and share those methods and this whole thing can be subject to some sort of peer review. So I think we did a lot to brainstorm like, what are all the terrible things that could happen? What are the ways that we would respond to those things? What are the comparative, you know, harms with not doing the research? And then we basically put that all together when we talk to the IRB and like sometimes there's some pushback just to make sure you are maximizing the safety, you know, can you get extra cameras places? Can you get extra spotters in the environment? You know, what's the maximum speed you should really be doing this at? So we do that. But I also think that it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. Like unless someone's willing to try it, you really don't know what's safe or not, you know? And there's a lot of people who don't care at all about safety. (laughs) And if we just let them do things and the things just will not be safe. So you know, I think sometimes we actually write these like IRBs, like here are all these things that could happen, you know, and they're just like, I mean, is this not just like driving a car on the road? Is that not the risk that we take every day? And I'm like, well, I'm glad I feel that way. You know, if our proposal, you know, makes the people who are reviewing it feel like we're being like overly dramatic about the safety issues, then I feel good. It is something that we work with. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Whenever I, you know, really encounter something that seems really novel, especially from a driving perspective, just given some of the, I don't want to say pushback, but just some of the kind of contortions we have to do sometimes to get people to see things around. Hey, we're really trying to be safe. We're trying to be mindful of what the risks are. But just as you so correctly indicated, you are actually on the road. So it is going to have some degree of danger and you can mitigate that, but you can't just completely eliminate it because you are in a vehicle. So I always find that really interesting. But to pivot a little bit, I wanted to ask you about your perspective on prototyping. So given your extensive study into implicit interactions, how do you approach the challenges of designing a system that both understands and responds to nonverbal cues in really a highly dynamic environment like what you would experience with an autonomous vehicle, for instance? If I'm going to be perfectly honest, I do like autonomous cars. I think it's really interesting, but I'm much more working on autonomous cars because this is like on the forefront of where interaction is, you know, where we have systems that take action and the people have to adapt their behavior to them. And if those things are designed poorly, you know, it's life or death. For me, a lot of the things I would design before, like robot systems, like literally people would say to me, like, but the work that you're doing, all this work, it just makes the robot nicer. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. That is what we're trying to do. You know, I think they couldn't see why that was really important. Or they would say, couldn't we just have the robot wear a sign? Or couldn't the robot just announce, you know, I am moving forward. 
it's not ambiguous at all. And then if there's an accident, it's really the person's fault. And I was like, yeah, but who's going to have that robot in their environment? Constantly making noise and just like demanding all this attention. And the nice thing about the pushback is it makes me really think like, what are the costs to bad interaction in the world? Is it just that things are less nice? You know, in the car space, it makes things less safe. But it's also like a giant cognitive load that gets put on everyone when things are not working the way they should. And it keeps other things from working safely and well. And that could be the difference between adoption or not adoption for a lot of these technologies, which, you know, I do get a lot of pushback on autonomous cars for people who are like, we don't need autonomous cars. We're driving fine. And I'm like, you know, to your research, there's a lot of people who don't have access to transportation. And like, it could be a game changer for their employment or their medical care to actually have good transportation. A lot of women I know don't work or don't work full time because they're spending a lot of time transporting children. If we felt safe having children move from place to place, that is a lot of really smart people that would be freed up. You know, so there's just things like this, which I think we're taking the status quo, you know, like limitations for granted. And I really think get beyond that. It's really important. So I really think for me, like a lot of technologies that we have are really interaction limited and Without trying to cast dispersions on our educational system, the kinds of people we pick and the sorts of training we do don't teach people to notice these things that aren't really explicit, you know, like formally explicit or physically explicit. And so a lot of my research is about setting up situations and then capturing data that we can show people so we can have discussions. Because if I tell people, you know, some of the results from our studies, people are always really skeptical and if I can show people, they're like, oh, okay, and what causes that? Is this, this thing about the context or is this one thing about the behavior? And we can get beyond that initial, like, does that happen? I'm like, it happens. They're like, but does it happen? And you're like, let me show you footage. <laughs> so a lot of what I'm trying to do is set up scenarios that anyone can look at. And then we bring our expertise as human beings that interact in the world to the problem instead of just debating it on a, you know, ideological front. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you touched on an interesting point. Well, you touched on a number of things there, but you touched on a really interesting point when you discussing things with people, you know, telling them versus actually showing them and how that might have a difference. So have you found that over the years with more of an awareness about AI, more of an awareness about advanced technologies, that maybe people's perceptions about what is possible and how things should work and how things should be designed has evolved at all? Have you seen any movement in that direction at all? Or has it remained pretty static from your perspective? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. It's a little hard to know because we're in a, you know, I mentioned I grew up in the Bay Area and it's a very techno-optimistic environment. People really strongly feel that things would be better because of technology, you know, tomorrow. And a lot of people are really devoted to like making that happen. I really feel like since moving to the East Coast, I know a lot more people who are very skeptical. And I don't disagree with the skepticism. I think it's in some ways more nuanced. There's awareness that like technology doesn't just exist, you know, because of certain actors and like who is funding and who is using the technology changes, you know, the way the technology impacts society a lot. So I just asked about, you know, maybe changing perspectives about technology, the rise of AI, what that technology looks like, you know, Viscerally, I would like to think that people's perspectives about technology may be evolving a little bit in a positive way, perhaps, as they gain more awareness about what the potential positive implications are. And really, this is two parts. 
has your thinking from a prototyping perspective and really designing things, you know, really almost the art of the possible, you know, what can be done, has that evolved over time to a degree? And what types of challenges do you face? And maybe you can give an example of one of the type of challenges that you have faced from a prototyping perspective as you've tried to design some of these really innovative technologies. So to go back to what I was saying before, I feel like since I was moving locations, it was hard for me to know whether things are changing in time or I'm just around different kinds of people. You know, when I do this kind of research, the good thing about it is if you love the technology or hate the technology, hopefully you would still want this research to be done because, you know, people have a belief of what's going to happen when we introduce this technology to people. So my research would help illuminate that. And if you felt like it was going to go poorly, you'd want everyone to know and see that. And if you thought it was going to go well, you'd want everyone to know and see that. So I feel like the emphasis on the empirical reaction has been really good for me. And it's been useful for kind of straddling a divide where people have differences of opinion about what's going to happen. I think still, logistically, a lot of our work is very complicated. You know, we have to stage things in physical environments. It requires a lot of setup. As much as possible, I want to be around real people acting normally. And so, you know, this could be seen as this type of deception study. So you have to do a lot to justify the deception. And then you also have to record the behaviors. You also have to do a lot to justify this invasion of privacy. And it is not different than what I was describing before, which is, you know, it's really important to acknowledge that there is, you know, some violation of privacy. And then it needs to be discussion of what the merits of that are. You know, what sorts of things can be done to mitigate the harms that would come from that? One of the things I tell my students, like all the time they're trying to like save paper or, you know, like use fewer wires, you know, (laughs) they just want to be conservative. They want to be like ecological. But I'm like, if you design poorly and then we take your bad idea and we multiply it, you know, have we saved anything (laughs) or have we just made money? The design process costs something and you need to be mindful of why you're incurring that cost. And then you need to think about the economy of the whole thing. Like it's probably worth extra iteration, extra prototyping, the extra setup to get the benefits of knowing whether you have things right. And I feel this about a lot of the costs, you know, and the dangers of the sort of research that we do that I don't want to say it's safe. I want to say it's worth it. And I want people to think really hard about why we're doing the research. And so I feel this way, you know, I think more people are on board now for that, but I don't know if it's because society's changing or I've just been nagging people for a really long time. Found a willing audience, but you know, this thing that I'm willing to like put in a lot of effort on. That's really interesting. And I think I tend to be just personally, I like heavily driven by science fiction and Isaac Asimov, Black Mirror, Arthur C. Clarke, many of the newer writers who basically write science fiction. I'm reading a quick plug. I'm reading a book now called Quantum Radio, which is about basically a collider and going to another dimension and all this. It's like really an interesting story. I tend to be very driven by that. Do you ever find that, you know, in terms of, you know, not even necessarily maybe some of the things you're doing specifically, but in terms of some of your motivations, are you motivated at all by, you know, any of the popular culture, sci-fi, you know, any of that type? I'm good friends with people who write science fiction. I've been invited to some of these things. And I think maybe I have a similar attitude where what I like to do is watch people. I'm so interested in how people interact. I do spend, like when I go to a coffee store, like I'll just spend the whole time watching people run into each other, trying to go in and out of the door, who's 
someone through who's kind of huffy when like someone sneaks in before them. And like what I notice is that the people who write science fiction or who are interested in science fiction shows, they're just taking the problems and the, you know, drama of everyday life and setting it into slightly different settings. <laughs> and I feel like that's what I'm doing too. There's no specific science fiction writer whose work I'm really driven by. I'm really driven by like things I'm empirically seeing in the world and then trying to change things to kind of understand those things better. So I really love this researcher named William H. White, and he has all these wonderful videos of people interacting in public spaces in New York. And when I moved to New York, one of the things I wanted to do was those exact same kinds of experiments, just looking at how people don't run into each other walking on the sidewalk, but with robots. And so, yeah, like, I also think traffic is fascinating. And like, when my ethnographer friends come to town, there is like a giant traffic circle. I cannot believe is not having an accident a minute. And we'll just sit there and watch the cars and the way they move around each other. So that is more where I get my ideas from. But then I definitely hear from people who I really like a lot who are super motivated by sci-fi or they think our work seems sort of sci-fi. And I think it's because maybe we're thinking a little bit more like sci-fi writers. Yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of thing to think about. I want to go back to your research for a moment. So you touched on the inherent complexity of a lot of the work that you do, which just from reading, you know, having read a lot of your papers, you know, really it's pretty obvious that it takes, even just from a logistical standpoint, you know, pulling off some of these things. What has been one of your most challenging studies that you've done to date? And can you describe that a little bit and talk about, you know, how you overcame, you know, some of the maybe logistical or other challenges that might have been inherent? I guess maybe like I was mentioning about the understanding self-driving cars and, you know, pedestrians and bicyclists, there are just some things I'm always like kind of noodling on, like, how could we study this thing? So one of those things for me is just differences in driving culture in different places. You know, we all know it's there. If you talk to people from automotive companies, they're like, yeah, but how do you study that? So like, it's not like this thing that people who like literally professionally do this. It is also a puzzle for them. Here's the thing we all know, and we can't figure out how to get a lens on it. And so for me, like, that's like an interesting problem because it's a classic design problem. Like in engineering, in psychology, we have this idea that you can like do a study and know what all of people do, you know, or you can like build a thing and then people will respond to it the same everywhere. And as a designer, you know, that's not true. You know, there's all these interesting nuances about context and culture that change how things are taken up. So like this driving differences thing is just a great example. And so basically in my mind, there's a little bit of a bounty on this problem. We can solve this problem. So one thing that we've been doing is just increasingly using, you know, obviously like driving simulation, 3D models, but virtual reality, you know, headsets for driving simulation. And partly this is just driven by the fact that they're so accessible they're inexpensive. And then as a bonus, it's easy for multiple people to be in the same virtual world at the same time. Looking at things from the same perspective or different perspective, there's some really nice psychology research looking at this. You know, and so for me, like the thing I wanted to do, we have just published our first set of papers on this, is use this, you know, virtual reality driving simulation technology to look at how drivers interact with one another when they're driving. So it's a really challenging thing. I mean, any study where you have to recruit multiple people is challenging. If they're not actually getting the same view, that's challenging. And since the thing I'm really trying to do is understand differences in culture, then basically I had to find a partner someplace that was definitely different enough, but is willing to run the study. So 
we have just run the study where we're running pairs of drivers in New York and pairs of drivers, you know, at the Technion and then like looking at the way they behave and then like having to analyze it and basically figure out the ways in which the driving is similar and different. And the punchline is like our friends at the American Technion Society said, you managed to find the one population that makes the Israelis look better. But it is really interesting, you know, all these like little nuanced differences. And the thing that is really going on here is that when I see the self-driving cars driving around on the road, like, I just think like, what are they doing? Like, nothing they're doing makes sense to me. And you realize that maybe from a mechanical perspective, there's all these ways we can drive. But from a communication perspective, there's specific things that we do so we can coordinate with other people on the road. And I just don't think that the way that those cars are being designed right now is really thinking about that. There are some signs they're starting to adopt. You know, like it's not front of mind. And if we can actually get studies that not only describe, but have the data that show how these driving behaviors are different, and maybe more importantly, you know, how you can recognize gaffes in the interaction, like this could make it so the cars were much, much safer and much more adapted to the different places they're going to be deployed. Moving forward. So really trying to think about the next maybe three to five years, where do you see your work going? Are you going to be kind of doing work? obviously in the same domain, but, you know, how do you see your work maybe evolving a little bit or what do you think it might look like three to five years from now in terms of what you're exploring and some of the types of problems that you're trying to address? Yeah. I mean, I'm always focused on interaction. I think it's become clear, like I was saying, oh, I'm so interested in doodads, but like on their own, they're not that interesting. And what I see is there's like a lot of interesting drama when people are trying to figure out how to interact with them. And so, you know, the work I'm doing right now this thing I just described to you, we're doing the next version, which is looking at driver-pedestrian interaction. And that's more interesting because it's more life or death, but also because the variation in what pedestrians could do is wider. We're also looking at human-robot interaction in this kind of same way, like thinking about how people move in and around machines and how those machines can make themselves clearer. And for me, I think the thing that I always focus on is this kind of like these micro-exchanges and the models that kind of go behind that, like what people expect one another to do, what they're like looking at, and then how that applies to the way that people are with machines. I think this is a big enough problem. That's probably the rest of my career. So we're right at time. I always like to wrap up with a couple questions. So I had a question prepared for you, but I think I'm going to go actually off script. I'm going to ask a different question. I'm going to be bold. If you could take anyone in technology, technology broadly, to lunch, who would that be? You know, I mentioned him earlier, but I, maybe it would be Eric Horvitz because I think he sits right now at this intersection between AI and HCI and has for a long time. And I'm really curious to know what he thinks the big problems are. You know, I think that AI opens up a whole raft of new HCI problems. I think I have difficulty wrapping my head around the larger shape of it, you know, I can just see all these little problems. And I'm curious to know whether he has, you know, a broader perspective on that. That was a great response, by the way. Thank you. And finally, what is just a really big or maybe difficult challenge from an interaction or autonomous vehicle or any area maybe that you work within? What is one big challenge that you think is not necessarily being heavily explored at the moment? one that is really ripe for exploration, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, a thing I've been trying to do, but it's still hard, and I think would love more people to be in this area, is looking for the way that norms 
and patterns develop? Like, how do we decide, you know, for example, like how we're going to get along? Like, there was this joke that the British know how to form a queue with one person, you know? <laughs> in some ways, it's a little bit radical, but it's basically saying, like, there's such a belief in social order, such an understanding of how social order is created that they can by like kind of just like the where a person is standing you know cause all these other people to like follow suit and i think a larger understanding of you know what are the factors that like kind of go into like norm creation and how those things are developed in the moment like i think that's like a really interesting tough fun problem well thank you for that that was a very insightful response well I've really appreciated having you on Designing for Movement. It's been a great privilege. Like I say, I've followed your work for some time. So hopefully the listeners get some really insightful information out of listening. I appreciate you being on and thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on designing for movement, the UX for Mobility podcast.